Seated and children can go to King's Table upstairs. If you're of that age, you can go. Uh, we are going to wrap up the book of Habakkuk today. No shouts of joy, right? You must have really enjoyed the book. So, um, so open to Habakkuk 3. We're going to look at the last three verses of the book, which is sort of the conclusion that, that Habakkuk gives to this Q&A with God. Now remember that we've, we've looked at various or two different questions that Habakkuk asked and God answered those questions. And then Habakkuk reflected on it and he commented on it and kind of worked through, worked through it internally. And then now we come to the conclusion of the book. Now what's remarkable about this book is that in the final verses we find Habakkuk not just resting in God, but rejoicing in God. He went from being doubtful and frustrated and disillusioned with how God works with his people to rejoicing. Not just being okay with it, but being happy in God, rejoicing in God. So let's read the last three verses, Habakkuk three seventeen through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there will be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Now, we find Habakkuk rejoicing in probably the worst circumstances that Judah has seen to date. It's amazing. He looks and there's a complete economic collapse. All the things that he lists are essential pieces of Judean economy, and all of it is gone. The figs, the olives, everything is gone. There's no harvest, nobody's planting anything, because just prior to that, the Babylonians have swept through Judea and Jerusalem. They sacked the city, they took a bunch of people into exile, they murdered most of the people who were there, and now a few that have survived are left to starve to death. That's the situation, and yet Habakkuk is rejoicing. He's saying, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. That's amazing. That's amazing he can be that, he can do that. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan, who was a, a preacher in London, uh, kind of early to mid-20th century, he comments on this verse, he says, This is the mystery, the arresting power of the text, that these two things are brought together, jubilation in the midst of desolation. If we were reading this for the first time, or if we found it in any other literature than this, we should be driven to inquire, was this man a fanatic? Was he deluded? Or did he speak a wisdom of which this world knows nothing when he crowned the song that describes desolation with the song which expresses jubilation? We believe that this is a song of the higher wisdom and that the singer was a philosopher in possession of the true secret of life. Would you like to know that secret that Habakkuk knew? Wouldn't you like to know how you can be joyful in the time of, of worst, severe suffering? Wouldn't we all want to know that? 
And many of us look at this text out of our own circumstances and say, I think I'm going to side with the first assumption that he was a lunatic. He was just delusion. I mean, he just doesn't know. He doesn't, he's not seeing his reality for what, for what it is. He's just simply laughing uncontrollably without really engaging with what's going on. And that would have been a likely assumption if he was the only person who was able to rejoice in suffering. But you look at Scripture, there are many, many people who can do that. You look at people around you, people in the church that you know, that you have personal experience of, that are rejoicing in the time of suffering. So this is not just an isolated instance. Many people have rejoiced in the time of severe suffering and hardship. We look at David, King David in the Psalms. How many Psalms you've read that start out with this this picture of, of utter destruction and danger and despair and then ends the Psalms end with David praising God and rejoicing in the God of his salvation and singing about his steadfast love, right as he is being chased by King Saul and hiding in a cave somewhere. It's amazing. Psalms 57 and 59 would be good examples of that. And then you look at the New Testament in, um, in Acts 16 where you have Paul and Silas who were stripped naked, beaten, put in jail, shackled in a cell, and in the night they're singing hymns to God. And not just mumbling, you know, songs. They're they're singing loudly so other prisoners can hear them. They're rejoicing in the time of severe suffering, physical, emotional, spiritual. They're struggling, and yet they're singing. I remember hearing Johnny Erickson Tata speak at Founders Week 15 years ago, when I was at Founders Week last. And I I saw her speak, and, and if you know her story, she, she had an accident when she was 17, I think, was paralyzed. She's a paraplegic, can only move one of her fingers, and, and I think she can turn her head a little bit maybe. She can speak. Um, so she's in a wheelchair, and, and she was singing. As part of her message at Founders Week, she was singing. She was singing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. I remember the hymn she was singing. Amazing. And she was happy. She was joyful. How can I be like that? How can I be so joyful, so happy in a circumstance that is so difficult. Now, I think I can be. I think you can be. I think it's accessible to us. I think this experience is is possible for all Christians to have, that we can, in fact, be joyful even in the midst of very difficult circumstances. So let's learn from Habakkuk. Let's try to see if we can learn how to be joyful, how to rejoice and sing, in uh, very difficult circumstances. Habakkuk does three things here in the text, which will be our outline. He runs, he looks, and he sings. He runs to the hills, he looks from the hills, and he sings in the hills. That's our outline. So he runs, literally runs for the hills. Verse 19, read this. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Why is he talking about high places, the heights? Well, it's because he literally ran from the city that was being sacked by these overpowering forces of of Babylon. He ran for the hills to hide, to find safety, to avoid violence and death. And many people did that. In fact, in the ancient world, that was a common thing to do. When your city got attacked, which happened a lot, and when you knew that there was no chance that you were going to survive, you just ran for a place where you could hide. And if there were mountains close by, that's where you would go. You would hide in caves because armies could not move very quickly in the mountains. So you would hide, and you would wait it out. And hopefully, 
the armies would leave and you can come back to your house, to your, to your home, try to pick up the pieces and keep living your life. Jesus in Matthew 24, 16 talks about the same situation when he says when tribulation comes, you know, pray that you're not pregnant, pray that you're not nursing, pray that it's not in the wintertime because it'll be hard for you because you will have to run to the hills and you'll have to hide in caves and it'll be hard for you if you are pregnant or with child or, or it's, it's cold outside. So it's a common experience in the ancient world. And so Habakkuk has run to the hills, he's run into the mountains, and now he's trying to process what's happening to his city that he can see from there. Now we will get to deer's feet a little later. I'll explain what that, that means. But the image here is of Habakkuk and others running for the hills even as the enemy is destroying Judea and Jerusalem. Now, how does this relate to us? Why is it so important for me to explain the background of this? Because any significant difficulty in your life, any season of suffering to whatever degree, does the same thing to us. We, too, run for the hills. We, too, run to the mountains when we are hit with a significant degree of suffering. When something happens, when something dramatic happens in your life, you get diagnosed with cancer, your marriage breaks up, you know, your kid gets in trouble, something happens like that. All of a sudden, your whole life has changed in a minute. That one thing the doctor said now has changed your life. You are not thinking about things you used to think about. When you look at your to-do list for that day, all of a sudden, half of those things are not applicable anymore. You don't care about it. You're not going to do that. Once you've been diagnosed with cancer, you're not going to follow through with your commitment on calling Comcast and arguing about your cable bill. You're just not going to do that. It's not important anymore. It's been put in perspective. Everything becomes about survival. Now you're just trying to figure out how to live. You're just trying to figure out what to do next so you can actually be alive tomorrow. And so you're talking to doctors, you're talking to your friends, you're trying to get your affairs in order. And not just not important things in life seem to just kind of fall away, all the fluff seems to disappear, but also things that are important become even more important to you. Now you look at your family and you realize, man, I really need to spend more time with them. Before, before suffering happened, I was able to just take it for granted. Whenever I get time with my kids, it was fine. Well, now I really, I better really spend some time with them. I really need to schedule. I need to spend as much time with them as I can. You know, when you, when you are, are, are faced with the prospect of death, you start evaluating your life and you start enjoying very simple things of life, like a cup of coffee in the morning all of a sudden becomes very important to you. Why? Because you realize, I didn't enjoy life before. But now that I know it might end, all of this becomes important and enjoyable and relevant. Divorce or separation does that to you as well. You look at your family and you realize, my family is really important to me. Maybe I didn't pay enough attention to it before, but now I will. Now I will, because as I'm suffering, as I'm struggling, I'm realizing what's important to me. Same thing with the relationship with God. When suffering hits, people get religious in a hurry. Many people do, right? Because maybe you used to be nominally Christian before you used to come to church sometimes. Well, now you're at church all the time because you're trying to grapple with these big issues of life. What happens to me if I do die from this? How do I survive this? Where is God in all this? Why does he allow suffering in the world? All those issues become very important to you and you're starting to grapple with those big important issues of your life. A time of suffering makes you run for the hills and worry about your survival. And everything gets cast in a different light. Now you're not looking at your life 
the same way you used to. A time of suffering reveals truth about you and your life. It changes you. It gives you clarity and confidence that you never had before. Just like when you're leaving the city that's being sacked behind. You're not thinking about anything else but just making it to safety. And you're going to run as fast as you can. There's a tremendous amount of clarity and confidence that comes from this. Now, if you have run to the hills and you're finding safety there, you're trying to evaluate your life, most likely when you come back, when it's over and you come back to the city, most likely you will come back a stronger person, a better person, a more joyful and more confident person. Most likely. But the other scenario is that you don't come back at all. You see, when in the ancient world, when you ran to the mountains to avoid violence in the city, as much as you were hoping to get safety in the mountains, you also knew that you were going into a more dangerous place. Why? You're a city dweller. You don't know how to negotiate this rugged terrain of the mountains where every stone uh, it may not be what it seems. You may slip, you may break your ankle, you may, you may die in a cave. I mean, who knows what's going to happen? You don't know how to deal with that. So, so you're going, looking for safety, and yet knowing that you're also going into a place that is more dangerous that you might not return from. Not everybody came back to the city from the mountains. Many people perished. One wrong step and you might fall to your death. It's not like that in the city. See, the trouble with suffering is that some people come out stronger and better, while others die in the mountains. They don't come out at all. And maybe not physically, even though that's true. Many people don't survive cancer and things like that. But many people, though they survive suffering physically, they come out completely broken emotionally and spiritually. And you see that they've become a different person. Something happened. So what's the difference? What's the difference? How can you go to the mountains and not just survive, but actually become stronger and come back to the city and pick up your life and do well with it? Well, it's clear what the difference is for Habakkuk. Look at verse 19. He says, God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. The prophet clearly credits God himself with helping him negotiate the rugged terrain of the mountains. It is God who guided him and kept his foot from slipping and his ankles from breaking. It is God himself who was his strength. Not just God giving him strength, but God was his strength. Because God was with him. God was directing his steps. He was walking alongside him. God made his feet like the deer's. Now, you may be thinking, who wants feet like the deers? Have you seen deers? Not pretty feet. You can't wear high heels with those feet. I have to, ladies, can't do it. But if you're in the mountains, that's exactly the kind of feet you want. Have you ever, okay, Google mountain goats in your free time, not right now, but <laughs> Google mountain goats, just pictures of mountain goats. It's amazing, amazing animals. Looks like a goat, but they live, live in mountains, and they climb these, these, you know, these tremendously dangerous cliffs, stand right on top of it, looking down with this, this dramatic view. You have some great pictures online of this. I've, I have researched this. So. And, and, and you wonder, how did they get up there? Well, they have the right feet for the terrain. They have feet like a mountain goat, like a deer. And so Habakkuk looks at his experience in the mountains, and he says, God made my feet like the deer's. 
so I don't stumble, so I know which stone is trustworthy to step on. It was God who directed me. It was God who was there with me, making sure I don't fall, making sure I don't break my neck as I, as I fall off this cliff. He credits God with this. Now, what's the application here for us? Well, when you run for the hills, when you suffer, when you run for the hills, everything in your life changes. Do not leave God behind. Do not leave God behind when you run for the hills. Many people do. Friends, that's the difference. That is the difference. If you want to come out stronger and better and more joyful, you have to navigate the terrain with God. He has to be there with you. He has to guide you. He has to give you feet like the deer's. And when you're suffering, use this language. Pray like this. Pray like Habakkuk and say, God, be my strength. God, be my companion. I'm going into the mountains, but I'm going with you. And I will be okay because you will help me. Because you will give me the right feet. You will equip me for this season of suffering. Let him be your guide, your companion. Pray for God to make you as sure-footed as a mountain goat. Use that language. God, make me like a mountain goat so I can navigate this terrain. Pray like this. Pray specifically. Now, the analogy for that, you know, when, I, when you talk like that and you say, you know, God is my strength like Habakkuk does, or you talk to other Christians and say, God is with me, how can you quantify this? How can you prove it's true or not? But if it is your experience, it's just as real to you as, as things you can touch. And so there's many Christians who give these testimonies of God's presence in a very difficult circumstances. Of course, in Scripture, we see in the furnace with Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, remember that they're in the furnace. There's three people, and yet there's the fourth one there, someone who's like the Son of God, who's walking with them, and they're not burned. Other people see that. Something is happening there that God is present with them. God went in with them into the, the furnace. Um, T.S. Eliot, his, his famous, I would say probably most famous poem is The Wasteland, and this is what he says. Who is the third that walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look ahead up the white road, there's always another one walking beside you. Now, T.S. Eliot explained that what he had in mind was, was this expedition that Sir Shackleton in the early 1900s had into the Antarctic. So they're in this extreme environment, extreme environment, super cold, you know, they don't have enough provisions. And, and when they were pushed to the extreme of their endurance, they testified, the people who were there, they testified that they felt a presence of another person. They would look around, they would count the people there, and they would say, it seems like there's more people here than there actually are. Somebody else is with us, walking with us, guiding us, being with us, and we can sense his presence. Who was that? It was Jesus. Jesus was with his people in the Antarctic, in the desert, in the furnace, in the hills. Jesus goes with us. So when you suffer, when you run for the hills, literally, when you run for the hills, if there's an invasion, don't leave God in the city. Go with God. Allow him to guide you and correct you and provide for you. So that's the first point, that Habakkuk runs to the mountains. Now, secondly, he looks from the hills. And we already touched a little bit on that. We saw that you get a different perspective on your life when you are suffering. Suffering reveals something 
that is true about your life. It, it gives you the right assessment of what is happening in your life now. And so Habakkuk does the same thing. He looks down. He looks at the land that's being devastated by the Babylonians. And by that time, maybe the Babylonians are on the way out. They have, they've totally destroyed everything they could. They sacked the city. There's nothing good that's left. They took out a bunch of people into exile. And, and most everybody else was killed. And Habakkuk looks down and he looks and sees that there's no harvest coming. Nobody's planting anything. It's going to be really hard. and It's going to take years to rebuild the economy of Judea. And so he looks and he sees that everything that he took for granted, everything that he trusted to be there every day is now gone. It's just gone. And he lists these things, the figs and the olives and the grapes and the sheep, the cattle and the stalls. Those are specific things about the economy that people relied upon. So put it in your context. Maybe gas for your car is gone. Maybe electricity is gone. Banking is gone. Those kind of things. Things that you rely on every day are now all gone. It's just been devastated. They're all taken away. And yet, what does Habakkuk say to this? When he sees it, what does he say? He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in God of my salvation. What happened? How can he actually praise God and rejoice in God when he sees such a tremendous devastation? How can he do that? Well, what happened is he not only got a new perspective on his life and what he saw below, he got a new perspective on his relationship with God. His relationship with God was revealed to him. Now he knows what it is. Things have been exposed about how he related to God. And he realized that he can rejoice in the Lord and not simply because of what the Lord has done. This is a tremendous change. And all true Christians have to go through that change when you realize that you can rejoice directly in God, in His nature, in His character that doesn't change, even though His blessings come and go. And so Habakkuk looks down and he says, everything we relied on is gone. But God is still here. God is the same as He's always been. And I will rejoice in Him. And he calls Him the God of my salvation. Not because God saved Him now, the city is, is, is desolate, it's, it's gone. That's not because God saved now, but because God in his nature is a God who saves, is a God who delivers, is a God who helps. And so even though there's no evidence that God is involved, knowing the nature of God, Habakkuk is able to rejoice directly in him. The same experience that Apostle Paul had in Philippians 4, verse 11 and on, Paul said, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He says, I can be content even in these extreme circumstances, just like I am content when I have plenty. I'm content the same way. Why? Because God is the same, and I can do both through God who strengthens me. Now, let's make it a little more practical. A couple of things Christians say. We say, praise God, and we say, God is good. You've all said it. I've heard most of you say it. When do you say those two things, or one of those things? You say, praise God, 
for. There's always a for, right? Praise God for what? For a raise. Praise God my, my child is now going to a good school. Praise God that, that I got a promotion at work. Praise God that my children are doing well, they're healthy. Praise God my marriage is strong. When you see the blessings in your life, you praise God for them. And you say, God is good. When do you say God is good? When God has done something good for you, most of the time. God is good because God has done something good for me. Is it wrong to do that? Absolutely not. We praise God for all the blessing He gives us because we're thankful for that. And so, yes, you must praise God for all the blessings. The question is, do you still praise Him when there's no blessings? Do you still praise Him? Do you still affirm that God is good when it seems like He hasn't done anything good in your life today? When suffering comes, you can actually answer those kind of questions. You can actually check in yourself whether you are able to praise God in scarcity as you did in abundance. Now, your relationship with God is revealed. It's exposed now. That's what's happening with Habakkuk. He's realizing what his relationship with God is, and he's able to praise him because of the relationship that he's had with God. But suffering will allow you to see what your relationship with God is for what it actually is. So there's two options uh, in terms of how your relationship with God can be. Now, I'm assuming you have a relationship with Him, okay? So I'm not talking about people who are completely away from Him, but those who claim to be His people, there are two options. One, your relationship with God is conditional. It's conditional on His blessings. When you praise God, you praise Him in return for the good things He gave you. It's your way to pay him back. You, said, you say, God, thank you for what you've done. Your thank you comes after he's done something for you. You love him as long as he, as he does what you want. You withdraw from him as soon as he withdraws his blessings. When you say God is good, if this is your relationship, you mean that God has done something good for you. That's what you mean. God has done something good for me, and I'm thankful for that. But you, do not, you don't mean that God is good in and of Himself, that God in His nature is good, that God is always good, eternally good by who He is in His character. Does that describe your relationship with God? Is that why when you head for the hills, you don't ask God to go with you because you feel like He's failed you? So why would you invite Him to go with you in a time of suffering when you feel like He should have been to prevent it altogether? Now let me be very clear. If your relationship with God depends on the circumstances of your life, you are simply using God. You are simply manipulating God for your purposes. If you praise Him when He gives you what you want, and if you stop praising Him when He doesn't, all you've done is you've used God to get what you wanted. And now that He's no longer useful, you don't need Him, and you discard Him. And you go, you, you run for the hills on your own by yourself. Is that your relationship with God? Now, we, we see things like that in our church. Um, and as I describe it, you will probably be able to put names to these stories, you know, to, to this example. We see people who come to our church in a time of tremendous crisis. And we welcome, we always welcome them. And, and we help them. And usually, let's say somebody is recovering from addiction or somebody is coming out of a really difficult relationship, whatever. There's some trauma, there's some suffering involved. They come to the church, 
and they say, I need God. I realize that I need God. And they go to every service. They go to every possible Bible study. They, they do everything they're supposed to do to get as much God as they can. Now, I'm always very cautious with that. I'm always cautious in that time, during that crisis, to affirm them in their faith completely. Because I know that many of them, when their life is back together, will turn away from God. Many of them, if not most, in my experience. In the time of crisis, they cry out to God, and then God gives them what they want. God helps them. God gets them sober and clean. God gives their family back together, whatever that is. And then they're gone. Why? They were never after God, never. They just needed help. And God seemed like a person who would do that. And so they turned to God, they got help, and now that they're okay, they don't need God anymore. And they're gone. Many people like that, and it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking to see that in my position, seeing people hurting who come and get help, and then they're gone. Because I know they're going to hurt again. I know there's going to be more trouble, there's going to be more suffering, and they're not ready. They don't have the only person that can help them through it. They rejected him. Now, that's one type of relationship you can have with God that's revealed in suffering. The other type is when your relationship is based in who God is, in his nature. Of course, you enjoy his blessings, but that's not why you love him. You love him because he is so beautiful and so perfect and so holy and so just and so loving that you can't help but love him. You're not attracted to the things that he does because you need them. You're attracted to God himself. Is that your relationship with God? Of course you're thankful for the blessings. Of course you, you thank him for everything he does in your life and you rejoice in it. And you say, thank you God for a raise and, and thank you God for the health of my children and the state of my marriage and my job and whatever that is. You thank him for that. But when it's not there... You don't love him any less because that's not why you loved him in the first place. You were not using him. You were not manipulating him. Now imagine that in a marriage relationship or in a dating relationship, you meet somebody who is wealthy, just has a lot of money. You start dating them or let's say you marry them and then their wealth is gone. Something happened, they have no money anymore. Some people stop their relationship right then and they get out. What do you think the other person feels, the wealthy, the formerly wealthy person feels when their relationship breaks down when their money is gone? They think they feel used? Absolutely, because that's exactly what happened. Because it wasn't about the person, but it was about the wealth of the person. Well, now translate into your relationship with God. When God's blessings are withdrawn and you withdraw from God, how does God feel? Used? Manipulated? Absolutely. Because that's exactly what you've done. What you've done is you said, I need something you have. I'm going to get to that through you. And as long as you have that and I can have it, I will be fine with you. I'll love you. I'll be faithful to you. But when that's gone, when that's off the table, I don't need you anymore. Because I don't need you. I've never needed you. I've just needed what you have. But if your relationship is based on the person of God, on his nature, and you just love him for what he is. Yes, you'll be thankful for the blessings, but if when the blessings are withdrawn, you're not going to withdraw yourself from God because what you love is still there, and that's God's nature. 
Now imagine this scenario. Answer, answer this question. Let's say that yesterday you were healthy, but today you're sick. Yesterday God kept you safe, but today you got into a car accident. Let's say yesterday you had a great job, and today you got fired. Here's the question. Has God's nature changed overnight? Do you believe that between yesterday and today, something radically shifted in the heart of God? That He was good yesterday, but He's evil today. That He was loving yesterday, but He's hateful today. That He was merciful yesterday, but today He no longer cares for you. Is that what you believe? It's illogical to believe that. It doesn't make sense. Don't you know that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Forever? Including all your tomorrows? God is the same? So God is the same when He blesses you, and God is the same when He doesn't bless you. God is the same when you are safe in your car, and God is the same when you get into a car accident. God is the same when you are healthy or you are miraculously healed. And God is the same when you have cancer and you're going to die. God is the same. His nature doesn't change. Do you remember the name that God revealed to Moses? He said, I am Yahweh. I am what I am. I am who I am. I don't change. I'm an eternal God. And in eternity, I stay the same. I'm just as faithful as I was yesterday. I'm just as faithful today as I was yesterday. I'm just as merciful today as I was yesterday. I love you just as much as I did before. And when you, when you get this, when you understand that God's nature never changes, don't you have a different perspective on your life and your circumstances? Shouldn't you be able to say, God, I will still love you. I will even rejoice in you because I'm not rejoicing in your blessings ultimately. I'm happy about it, but I'm not rejoicing in them. I'm rejoicing in the Lord himself. What if you can get there? What if you can have such a clear understanding of God's nature and such an assurance that it doesn't change, that His purposes stay the same, that in His blessings and in His corrections and in His discipline, He remains just as loving towards you as He's always been. And you can rejoice in Him just in the same way that you could under different circumstances. That's the perspective Habakkuk has when he looks down on the city. He looks from the hills, from a time of pain and hurt and suffering. He looks down and he says, I will still rejoice in the Lord because I'm rejoicing in his nature and his character. And it doesn't change. It's the same today as it was before my city was sacked. Are you with God because he gives you something you want? This is a hard question to answer. And I'm afraid you can't answer that unless you suffer. Unless you, go, you run for the hills, you won't be able to answer this question. Are you with God because He gives you something? Or are you with God because of who He is? That no matter what, gives you, what He gives you, you are still going to be with Him. One of the more profound verses in Scripture, also one of the hardest verses in Scripture to accept, is in Job 1, verse 21. When Job says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. What comes next? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. How can you say that? His children are die, have died. His wealth is gone. He is sick. I mean, he's ill. He, 
But yeah, Job says, blessed be the name of the Lord. Because his name is blessed. His name is perfect. His name is holy. It doesn't change based on your circumstances. And so he praises God, whether he has plenty or he has nothing. Now, some of you are in the hills right now. Some of you have run from the city and you're hiding in the hills. You're looking for safety and comfort and solace in God in the hills. Remember that he doesn't change. And pray that your relationship with him would be exposed, would be revealed so you can know how you really love him and how you treat him and what your relationship is based on. Now, lastly, Habakkuk runs, Habakkuk looks, and then Habakkuk sings in the hills. The hills are alive with the sound of music. You know what? It, it worked just as poorly in the first service as it, as, as it did here. What is the last line of this whole book of Habakkuk? To the choir master with stringed instruments. And it's not just directed to Sam with his guitar. It's directed to all of us. All of us are supposed to sing this song. Notice that he doesn't end his book on a reflection, on a statement of fact. He ends his book on a song. A song. And these words that are used in the text, when it says that, Habakkuk says, I will rejoice or I will take joy. Those are strong words. They mean the type of emotion that can properly be expressed in singing, in dancing, in shouting. That's what he's talking about. I think, or at least I imagine, Habakkuk is actually singing to God in the hills. As he looks down on the devastated city, as he is praying for his feet to be like the deer's, he is singing to God. He's singing praises to the God of his salvation. I think that's true. I think it's possible. I think it's, this kind of experience is accessible to us. Matthew Henry, the, 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 the old Puritan commentator on the Bible, says, But those who, when they were full, enjoyed God in all, when they are emptied and impoverished, can enjoy all in God and can sit down upon a melancholy heap of the ruins of all their creature comforts, and even then can sing to the praise and glory of God as the God of their salvation. Matthew Henry says it's possible. Many Christians have experienced it. Habakkuk says this happened to him, that even as you're walking in the hills of your suffering, you can still sing to God and shout for joy and dance to the God of your salvation. This is supposed to be our song. This is supposed to be our experience of rejoicing in suffering. But maybe you don't feel that right now. Maybe you understand what I said. Maybe you understand the book of Habakkuk. But the emotion isn't there. Your heart hasn't been moved to sing and shout and dance before God. What can move your heart? What is it that can affect you so deeply that you would sing, that you would dance even in the time of severe suffering? What could so clearly reveal God's nature and His character, His unchanging nature, that you would be moved to sing to Him? 
I only know of one event, I don't know of one person, I know of one thing that can move us so deeply that we can sing in the time of suffering. Several hundred years, years later, the same Lord, this Yahweh, the God of, of our salvation, became a man. And he lived a perfect life. Jesus lived a perfect life in perfect harmony with the Father, didn't do anything wrong, completely fulfilled the law. He was not supposed to get hurt. He was not supposed to have anything negative happen to him because he's lived a perfect life. And yet, at one point, his life was overrun and occupied by foreign soldiers. They arrested him. They accused him of something he had never done. Everything Jesus had was taken away. His friend betrayed him. His other friends abandoned him. He was stripped naked. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was tried and convicted by corrupt judges. He was lynched. The commentators liken Christ's experience to a lynching because of the injustice and the terrible violence and the mob mentality that was present there. Unlike Habakkuk, Jesus could not run for the hills. And yet he was forcibly taken to a hill outside of the city. He couldn't run there, but they took him there to punish him and to kill him there. Unlike Habakkuk, Jesus did not have the feet of a deer. As he carried his heavy cross, he slipped and he fell, and eventually someone else had to carry his cross for him. And then the soldiers, the occupiers of God's land, nailed him to the cross. And as Jesus looked from the cross on the hill, down on the city, he saw people overrun by sin, destroyed and devastated by sin, enslaved by the enemy. When Jesus was dying, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And though Habakkuk could sing in the hills, there was only silence on the cross. God never responded. God wasn't Jesus' strength. The Father did not come to help the Son. How can this move us? It could move us to song if we realize that all of this was done for us. That God's nature was perfectly revealed on the cross. The combination of, of mercy and justice. His deep, faithful covenant love for us that moved His Son to go and die for his people. You see, Jesus' foot slipped so that our feet would be as sure as the deer's. He went to the hill alone so that we would always have God as our companion and guide when we run for the hills. Jesus suffered alone so that we will never have to suffer alone. Jesus fell silent on that hill so that we can sing and shout and dance and rejoice even when our city is destroyed. That's the gospel. To the degree that you get it, to the degree that you sense it, to the degree that it moves you emotionally, intellectually, it, it grasps you, it, it doesn't let you go, to the degree that the gospel is important to you, you will be able to sing and rejoice even in the deepest suffering. That's the truth. This is as practical 
as the Bible gets, and it is very practical. Meditate on the gospel. Be moved by what Christ has done for you on the cross, and you will sing, you will dance, even in the time of suffering. We're going to come to take communion, and as you come to the table, you come to see what God has done for you. You come to see his body broken, his blood spilled. This is the gospel exemplified for you, the gospel on display for you. And you take the bread and you take the cup and you pray these prayers. You pray, God, make me as sure-footed as a deer. God, be my strength in the hills of suffering. Pray those prayers. Go to him. Don't go to the mountains by yourself. Take God with you and be strengthened by his son's body and blood broken and spilt for you. Be moved by it. Be moved by the cross even as you come to the table. And don't come gloomy-faced to the table. Come joyful. Come dancing. Come singing. Because God has done this great thing for you, forever proven to you what his nature is, the nature that doesn't change even when your circumstances do. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that you are a God who never changes that we can trust for you to remain loving, to remain faithful, to remain just, to remain merciful. And even though our circumstances change, let us not question your motives. Let us not question your intentions. Let us not question your heart. We don't need to do that because on the cross, we have been proven once and for all that you do love us, that whatever you do is for our good, that all things work together for our good, And so let us trust you in that. And as we suffer, let us turn to you. Let us trust you to be our strength. Let us recognize your presence among us even as we are pushed to extreme, to to limits of our endurance. I I pray, Father, that as as we try to negotiate the rugged terrain of the hills of suffering, that you will be our guide, that you will make our feet like those of deers, that we would be the kind of people who will be able to come out of suffering stronger and better and more joyful. And in the midst of suffering, we would be the kind of people who would sing and dance because we can rejoice in you, in your nature, in your character that doesn't change. We can rest, we can be at peace, and we can rejoice that we have you. And even if we lose everything, What we have in you, what's left in you, is so much greater. And let us rejoice in that. We pray for the Holy Spirit to come and make the gospel real to us again. I pray that the Spirit will move our hearts to song, even as we come to the table. Let us rejoice. We confess our insecurities and our anxieties. We realize that many times we have not focused on your nature, but only on circumstances. That many times we have questioned your intentions towards us. That many times we have interpreted your actions as, as your refusal to care for us. If you would, as, as you withdrawing from us, and yet you've never done that. So let us trust you. Let us trust who you are and rejoice in who you are. Convict us. If some of us have only had a relationship with you that is based on circumstances and try to use you and manipulate you, convict us and correct us now. 
draw us deeper into a relationship with you so we can love you for who you are. And I pray, Lord, that, that you would change us at this table. Some of us need help. We need nourishment. We need grace to survive in the hills. So we pray that you would give it to us. And those of us who just need a reminder of the gospel, do that for us. Remind us that Jesus did all of that for us because he loves us. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that together.